Hello and welcome to the program. This is another podcast for The Diplomat. My name is Luke Hunt and welcome to Beyond the Mekong. With me today is the international lawyer, war crime specialist, Michael Carnivus. Michael, welcome to the program. Uh, glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's, been, it's good to see you again. Uh, Michael has worked in these parts going back to the 1990s, a uh, prominent lawyer in genocide tribunals, and you defended Yang Siri, Yang Tarit, and May Smut. Uh, yeah, Yang right. Siri and May Smut, yes. Right. And Yang Siri was the uh, former foreign minister, the Khmer Rouge. Uh, take us through. What's your take on the Khmer Rouge Tribunal? We've asked a lot of other people before over the last year or so, but what's your take? Overall, the, uh, I think the results are, are rather mixed. I think there were very high expectations, but obviously on the procedural side, uh, I think they got it wrong. They used the, uh, the French model, which is what they have at the national mm-hmm. uh, courts. And I think that's, uh, it was the first time and probably should be the, the last time because it's not conducive for these very large uh, cases. I think uh, the quality of the judges was mixed. Um, from the international side, uh, very few had actual uh, international experience. On the national side, of course, we all know that uh, they weren't um, classically trained. So that was always going to be a, a, a challenge. But by and large, I think that you have to look beyond the fact that they only tried two cases, essentially, 001, which was Doik uh, with... Uh, Commandant of S21. That's right. And then uh, 002, uh, which were the leaders, uh, Kyu Sompon, Nun Chea, uh, my client, uh, Ing Sari, and then uh, Ing Tarit, uh, who, um, who passed away, who um, uh, was unable to... Uh, to complete the trial, my my client passed away, and then yep. the other the other um, for zero zero three and zero zero four those cases, they never went forward. And uh, but be, beyond that, I think you have to look at sort of the residual aspects of the ca- of the tri- of the tribunal to make a judgment call as to whether the two hundred or three hundred million dollars that was spent mm-hmm. was was money well spent. Right. Now, the tribunal here was a hybrid trial, and the local judges had the numbers over the international judges, and there's a lot of debate about that at the moment. There's plenty of information out there. But this hybrid type of war crimes tribunal, is there a future for it? And I understand that the putting together of this tribunal is being used as a role model or a kind of prototype for the Ukraine. Right, right. Um, well, I think it was the, the, the way the ECCC, the, um, the extraordinary chambers for the, uh, in the courts of Cambodia was, was set up, uh, the national side always wanted to have the superior numbers so effectively they could control, in a sense, the process. Right. And I think that uh, would be a disaster were it also applied elsewhere. I think that if you really want to have it international, mm-hmm. uh, you, the interna- and, and hybrid, uh, the internationals have to be in the majority uh, to make sure that political agenda that, that might exist 
here, which has been well documented here. Which ha yeah, exactly. Throughout the Khmer Rouge exactly. Um, because you can't say that after you know all these years and all we know about the Khmer Rouge, only three or four people were responsible. Yeah, indeed. For, yeah. So uh, for the for the the Ukrainian situation, they're looking at two kinds of models. One would be strictly international, mm -hmm. uh, and then they want the, the sort of the hybrid. Uh, where you would have some some Ukrainian participation, and I think the Ukrainians want to be involved. The sticking block there is a little bit different than it was over here, in that that tribunal is only going to be set up to try three people essentially: Putin, mm -hmm. the Prime Minister, and Lavrov, the the Foreign Minister of Russia, right. and only on one crime: the crime of aggression. Uh, now. While the U.S. and others are pushing for for that tribunal, they also want it in the sense that the, the result, whatever the result mm -hmm. is, especially, and we already know what the result is, because it's only going to be trying you know, those three on one crime. Right. Just just before we go any further, for the benefit of the audience, can you just explain briefly what? A crime of aggression is okay. The crime of aggression essentially is a leadership crime, and and so who, whoever the leaders are of the of the of the state, mm -hmm. who actively engage in in, in waging war. Yep. So in this instance, you have Russia, and you have Ukraine. Uh, I think it's it's pretty well known that Russia attacked Ukraine, and so while you have crimes against humanity and war crimes that would apply to everybody, including the leadership. Mm -hmm. For aggression, you can't try the ordinary soldier or even the mid-level officer. You have to try the people, the folks at the very, very, very top who actually make the decision to wage the war. And right. in this instance, they've already, you know, pretty much uh, nailed, you know, narrowed it down to three folks. Uh, so uh, now uh, the danger with that, outside the context of Ukraine, is that. Well, if we try Putin on aggression, then what's there to be uh, down the road to be, you know, for the president of the United States to be tried for aggression? Right. And so the U.S., uh, France, U.K., they're not necessarily interested in having precedent set. They say, you know, in other words, let's try Putin on aggression, mm -hmm. but that that should not set precedent that the crime of aggression could be applied against others. Right. So, and in the Ukrainian context, and the, the the pressure's coming in, or it's being applied, to pursue that agenda, as right. opposed to well, we'll get to genocide, right. obviously soon. But I'm just trying to right. right. I mean, the, well, the Ukrainians it. are sort of fixated, right? Um, you know, and rightly so. I mean, they're they're very you know they're on the receiving end. Uh, they see that there is this impunity gap. In other words. Because the, uh, the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction right now to try all sorts of crimes, but they don't have jurisdiction on aggression. And somehow they think that if they don't, have, if they don't charge Putin with aggression, somehow it's going to be a failed endeavor. Of course, you have to, you have to catch Putin first. Mm -hmm. The way they get around that is saying, well, we really don't need him in person. We can try him in absentia. So not only... Are they fixated with okay. getting that? You know, they're saying it really doesn't matter whether whether uh, we capture him or not. We can just try him in absentia, and that would be sufficient. Right, so they got the 
they have the justification and they have the means and right. the willpower, obviously. Right. And if you were to ask me, you know, I think it's a foregone conclusion what the result is. I mean, when yeah. you say, because one of the reasons they're arguing, mm-hmm. not that you're Ukrainians, but also Philip Sand, a professor in the UK, and others are behind this, they're saying it's easy to prove. Right. It's an, you know, so, uh, and of course, one of the main stumbling blocks, and which is why you need to have it international, is the issue of immunity. Mm-hmm. You know, and so uh, Putin, you know, if he was tried in a domestic uh, setting, he would have immunity as a state, you know, head of state, whereas in international court, uh, he would not. So the way they see this tribunal being set up is through the General Assembly, the way the, right. uh, the Khmer Rouge tribunal, that would make it international. The question is, were they to put it to the vote? before the General Assembly, do they have a sufficient number of states that would agree to it right. to make it look like, to, 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 for it to be acceptable as an international tribunal? Now we're heading into that, oh, the waters have been running deep lately, the definition of genocide. I certainly know what it is and what it means, and we've had these discussions right. before, but can you please, let, let, let's elaborate just a little bit. South Africa brought a case against Israel. The allegation is genocide, and uh, obviously all to do with uh, what's happened in Gaza since October seven. Right. What was your take on the uh, verdicts, or not the verdicts? Sorry, the uh, uh, recommendations. Right. And also the strict definition of genocide, please. And uh, as opposed to what Joe Bloggs, general public, tends to think it is. Right. Let me just start off with the the latter part. From from the optics, the average individual, Mm -hmm. even politicians, some journalists, will say what is happening there is genocide. Genocide has a very, very specific definition. And I think that the the more we stick to the definition, uh, the better we're, uh, we're for it. Now, the definition is basically, there's a policy in a sense, to attack a group because of religious or ethnic reasons. And you're trying to to destroy that group, the whole of it or part of it, because of who they are. So, for instance, if we go back to Nazi Germany, you know, they were targeting uh, Jews, they were killing Jews because they were Jews, okay? So... There we have a clear case, you know, of genocide. Now let's go to Gaza. Uh, there you have a war. First, it wasn't started by Israel. Israel is responding to an act of terror, uh, and where they're also holding hostages. And so they're prosecuting a war. How they go about prosecuting the war does matter. Now, just because you have a large number of deaths doesn't mean that you've reached genocide. It doesn't even mean that you've committed war crimes or crimes against humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, for that, you have, to, you have to look very carefully and see who are they targeting, how are they targeting, what force are they using. So even if you have a large number of civilian deaths, as regrettable as that may be, it may not necessarily be uh, a, uh, an international crime. So my take... Having, you know, looking at all of this, and I blogged about it. 
you're quite prominent on that. Yeah. I'll, uh, details to come. Yeah. You know, so looking at that, uh, I'm convinced 100% that Israel is, has not and is not committing genocide. I think South Africa, rightly, you know, seeing what was happening, brought the matter to the International Court of Justice. Mm -hmm. And my take was that by bringing it, at least we can have that discussion whether genocide right. is or is not happening. But also, uh, there is the issue of, is there, is there a probability that it might happen? Right, and this goes back to the role that the extreme right-wing politicians in Israel and the way they've shot their mouths off in regards to this conflict have uh, conducted themselves. Exactly. I mean, there are some comments that are pretty uh, toxic, uh, but also racist. And, you know, some were even talking about, you know, uh, let's move the population, the Palestinians, outside of Gaza. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what they want to do is they want to uh, occupy Gaza for themselves. They and wanna, that could uh, qualify as uh, genocide. I think, in my opinion, in my opinion, were they to forcibly transfer or chase uh, the the Palestinians of Gaza out, you create this, you create an environment that is so unlivable mm -hmm. that they're forced to leave. Uh, I think you are destroying part of the Palestinian fabric. And so that's why in my blog I come out and say, I think the court got it right that there is this possibility down the road that it might happen, that it might turn into a genocide. So mm -hmm. something that didn't start as, as one might end up. And, and so I think that because by the time they reach the decision whether it's genocide or not, it's going to take years for the court to resolve. Right. So this so the measures that they're imposing on, on Israel, in my opinion, are rather modest and necessary. It's mm. sort of like an injunction, you know, to say, well, until we decide, please don't commit genocide. Basically, that's what it's saying. Also, you need to allow more humanitarian aid. Don't destroy evidence. They're not suggesting that they have been, but they're making that, they're putting that marker down. Don't right. do that. Uh, at the same time, uh, which was Israel's strongest argument, which, and I think which is why uh, South Africa was always going to lose in asking for a complete ceasefire. Israel is, entire, is, is entitled to defend itself. Sure. Yeah. Now, uh, that having said that, I don't think that the way they're prosecuting the war now is the only possible way. Right. There are other ways. They could, they could certainly be a lot more moderate in the way they're conducting. Uh, the war, and I think uh, the end result of that whole exercise is to put Israel on notice. Like, you know, the world is watching. Please try to moderate. Unfortunately, the Netanyahu government seems hell-bent on continuing uh, to prosecute the war the way they feel is necessary, which may cause a lot more deaths. And at the same time, uh, it's putting the United States in a bind because, you know, it has to uh, assist uh, Israel. But at the same time, it may drag Israel, uh, the U.S. over the cliff uh, as well. Mm. You know, so they're holding hands as an aider and a better to a, to a potential genocide. As opposed to uh, Russia and the Ukraine, it is it's a little more awkward to explain. I tend to see it through the prism of war on terror 
and it's asymmetrical warfare. The world expects Israel to play by the rules under international humanitarian law, or IHL, but the other combatant is basically, essentially still using old school terrorist techniques, which is a legitimate form of warfare in many ways. And the, the different types of wars, and one is held by the, one is defined by the Quran, and the other is being defined by international law. How do you, you know... Okay, let me unpack a little bit of all of that. Okay. First, you know, Gaza is occupied. Mm -hmm. So, the, those who are being occupied are entitled to wage war. Yes. You know, uh, at the same time, they ought to, they should uh, abide by the rules uh, of the road. They have to conduct themselves in accordance with the, with IHL, the laws of, uh, of war. But of course, Hamas is not. Uh, those terrorist organizations usually do not. That said, Israel cannot look and say, well, they're not, so we don't have to. They must, because they're obligated, just like any other state. Uh, so I don't think thus far Israel is not abiding by uh, the laws of war. It's just that from what we see, it, it, it appears that, that way. We don't know uh, what information they have, and based on what information they are making decisions. I, I do know for a fact that Israeli Defense Force has lawyers next mm -hmm. to the commanders, and they're advising all the time on what is and what is not appropriate, the use of force, the target. Uh, the problem that, that we're seeing is Hamas not only is not playing by, by the rules, but they've embedded themselves within the population and, and so they've made places that are normally protected and, and, and civilians who are protected as shields. Uh, and so they're in the way. And of course, depending on the urgency of the situation, Israel has to uh, uh, prosecute the war in a particular way and innocent civilians get killed. But as I said earlier, we don't have enough information to know are there other options? Right. But we really can't also expect an Israeli commander to expose his soldiers to danger and right. to deaths, and at the same time have the incoming from Hamas, which is totally unrestrained. Right, and the deaths of children. It's sad. It is a tragedy. The whole thing is horrible. But the deaths of children and women and all people, obviously, it, that does not necessarily constitute a genocide, whereby no. it's obviously a great crime, but people really seem to, it, it can't be a great crime unless it's genocide. Right. You know, it's the way, it, the, the, it's kind of, it's. I think it's getting a little out of hand, to be honest. Well, it's been out of hand for a long time. I mean, uh, everybody wants to use the G word, genocide. Right. It's yeah. as if that that it's a zero-sum game, you know? Yeah. If there's no genocide, then there's nothing else. No. Uh, it could be extermination. It could be other crimes against well, humanity. This is why I found the idea of uh, prosecuting for aggression interest. Yeah, exactly. I mean, first of all, uh, even if you were to, to get Putin 
okay? Mm -hmm. And even if you were to try him on aggression, that's just one crime. Then you would have to turn him over to another tribunal, the International Criminal Court, and try him for the other crimes that he's committed. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, the sentence is probably not going to be any different. Right, and also that would also take an enormous amount of time. It would take time. It would take money. Uh, and, and, and everybody gets really worked up and excited about creating a new tribunal. I've seen it in the past. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, six months into the tribunal, one year, they're saying, where are the convictions? Right. Where, are the con you know, where are the results? It's as if you know, the conviction uh, is good value for the money as opposed to the process. Yeah. And I think the way they're going about it now, it seems that even if you have this, this uh, uh, tribunal, the special tribunal, ad hoc tribunal, yeah. hybrid, whatever the case may be, uh, on aggression, you've already decided what the result is. Yeah. How fair of a trial is it going to be? And what are you really going to accomplish? And if you're not really going to be able to get your hands on him. Even those who are saying, well, you know, under extreme circumstances, let's try him in absentia. No, uh, because even if you tried him in absentia, let's just mm. say, and then down the road, you happen to, to capture him. You gotta retry him again. Yeah. Uh, so if you have other possibilities like the International Criminal Court, and you can charge him on persecution, you can charge him you know, on all sorts of other violations, why not just go with that? Right. Now, just quickly, uh, what countries have you worked in in regards to war crimes tribunals? Well, I've, wor I've worked in... Uh, Give us some background. Well... It, 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 you've, it, it's pretty impressive. No, actually it isn't. Uh, all right. But, you know, I've, I've worked, uh, I worked in uh, the former Yugoslavia, mm -hmm. But the cases primarily were generated out of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, then, you know, Rwanda, Kenya, and of course uh, the uh, DRC, uh, Congo, Congo uh, and um, uh, not Albania, but Kosovo, and also um, uh, here in Cambodia. Right. And of all those, ca of all the cases, uh, I have to say. Uh, being in the uh, in the case before the court here in Cambodia, for me was was the crown I, I would say of all the other cases because mm -hmm. in zero zero one with Doik right now that was he was a commandant he was a commandant first trial in a first trial. trial and he had admitted to everything yeah. so it was basically a slow plea mm -hmm. and and Francois Roux, who was representing him along with a Cambodian lawyer. You know, they really never challenged anything because it, it all came down to sort of sentencing. It was, he, uh, uh, Doik had talked and talked and talked and admitted and admitted, plus he had done so beforehand with Dunlap, if you mm -hmm. recall. Uh, so there wasn't much of a trial. So it all came at the very end. And even at the end, Doik said, well, I'm innocent. You know, and that was, was a bit a, odd. That, that was a bit odd. So that, can I go home yeah, now? I right. told you what you wanted exactly. to know. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Finish with me, I'm off. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't quite like where's, where's with, in 002, because this was a new tribunal, new procedure right. uh, that had never been tested. And also the events had taken place back in, you know, between 75 and 79, mm. uh, before the International uh, Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and the tribunals that came afterwards. 
So now, what was the status of the law at that time? You know, what law actually applies? Plus, my client had been given amnesty. Yeah, Ing Sri. Yeah, he had been he had been given amnesty uh, and a pardon by the king. Uh, so that was going to be an issue. But f intellectually speaking uh, and career-wise, challenging everything right. and looking into everything uh, made it very, very exciting. You know, and you know, my client was highly educated. He wanted, he did not want a show trial like the seven, like the uh, mm. seventy-nine trial that occurred sure. here, which was uh, conducted yeah. by the Vietnamese after yeah. they invaded. And you know, he wanted, he wanted to challenge the evidence. We thought we had a pretty good case. Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting that you know he was going to walk out of the court, but I think there were things that that we would have been able to develop through the evidence to show that. You know, it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray area, right. and not every individual that is sitting, you know, in the dock, uh, is 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 equally responsible. Mm -hmm. So we had a very very good case, and and he was a lovely guy to to work with, uh, very very much engaged, and unfortunately he he passed away in the middle of the trial, and we never got to finish that, mm -hmm. and so uh, that was unfortunate. But then I went on uh, to. Uh, to represent uh, Mesmut, and he was head of the Navy. So, uh, very, Not very particular different. interest to the Australians and the Americans because he was the one who could have been charged in regards to uh, the Australian, British, and American sailors who were New Zealander. New Zealander, yeah, who were um, basically brought in by the naval authorities into right. the S twenty one where they perished. Right. I mean, I think if you if you got to look back at the time, and and you know there was a that was a very precarious time for Cambodia. They were paranoid. You know, yeah. almost immediately the day after the Phnom Penh falls, you know, they attacked Vietnam. So even though they were before that, they were sort of um, aligned, you could say. Uh, they really never trusted each other. And the waters, you know, and there was always this fear that you had these operatives out there, yeah. you know, spies and what have you. So why is somebody sailing, you know, into Cambodian waters? Now, he's probably sailing because, you know, maybe his compass, you know, wasn't working or he, he doesn't realize how dangerous it is, mm. uh, very innocent. But to them, you know, uh, you know, and you're a foreigner, obviously there must be something awry. And so the policy, the policy from the very, very top was you capture, you send. So there was no discretionary authority at the, le at, the at that level mm -hmm. for my client to say, okay, I'm going to release this person. I'll interrogate him. He's telling me he's sailing. He's not a spy. I'll let him go. That wasn't the way it, things operated. Right. Uh, and had he not followed, you know, the procedure, obviously, he would have been charged with, uh, with being a spy and, and would have ended up in, uh, in S-21. But let's face it, S-21 was a place for the cadre and you know uh, upper level echelon so in that most of the people who were killed there were actually Khmer Rouge cadre who right. were being purged exactly. in a very nasty way yeah they were being purged because there was this 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 concern that they were all spies they were uh, mm. working you know for the other side uh, uh, i think there was some you know some were uh, evening up scores or getting rid right. of their their rivals but I think there was a whole lot of paranoia, you know. And of course, once you got in there, 
and you're being tortured and you have to give up names so you give up names because mm -hmm. you know that's you know there's, there's kind of something I like just the way you kind of phrase that uh, ask a tabloid question um, this is probably most unfair but given that you've worked across the world many war crimes tribunals many different countries and obviously many different alleged criminals guilty or otherwise it, it, a lot of people given the way they approach the word genocide right. would be inclined to ask do they have any similar traits do you see any similarities between the people you're defending or are they just really completely different I think they're completely different you know uh, the circumstances are different I think the the Khmer Rouge uh, folks uh, were so so different from say the Europeans primarily because they were operating warlike conditions, a lot of paranoia, and I and I so I, I don't think you can compare them, say, with the folks in, in Bosnia-Herzegovina who were highly educated. They had gone to university, uh, they had gone to proper, you know, uh, military academies. Mm -hmm. uh, they obviously were trained on the, uh, the laws of war, so they knew that the do's and the don'ts, you know, they had manuals that sp spelled out what they should be doing and unfortunately you know i think sometimes in the middle of the, the fog of war mm. orders are, are are given sometimes they're not clearly articulated sometimes they're not clearly understood and sometimes they're just they they think that they can operate above the law and uh, because the uh, uh, the cause that they're fighting is a just one in their mind and right. so um, and so that, and, and so I. That's what I. I mainly see, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, just go one step further. Given that Cambodia will serve as precedent for possibly for probably for Ukraine, right. one would imagine, and a couple of others. Now, you, uh, you've obviously you, you worked at the tribunal. You followed it. Uh, there were. Look, there are many, many convictions, crimes against humanity, rape, torture, forced evacuations. Uh, there were forced marriage. Uh, forced yeah. marriage. I mean, yeah, yeah, the, the, the list of convictions, yeah, right. Geneva Conventions, uh, so many. <laughs> the fine print, my God, the devil is in it. But when it came to the charges of genocide. Right. The two charges that were registered were one against the Vietnamese right. and one against the charms, the, charms, the Muslim right. charms. And right. uh, uh, I'm under the impression you don't entirely agree with the verdicts. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. You know, um, just like when I was, I, I represented someone on the Srebrenica case where mm -hmm. everybody, or uh, uh, virtually all people that I know, although there are some exceptions who are very, very highly qualified individuals, you know, would agree with me that that wasn't a genocide. I go strictly by the definition. Uh, I don't think, I think with the Vietnamese, yes, those who had remained behind, um, who were indigenous to, to Cambodia, okay, they were attacked because they were Vietnamese and they were killed specifically for that. So what does that mean? Well, that's part, you know, that's a part of, okay, and they can never reconstitute themselves because they've been eradicated. So the Vietnamese, you know, uh, 
fabric of the Cambodian society, that part, mm -hmm. is gone. So that's why I think that was, uh, that was genocide. They specifically attacked them because of who they were, and that's why they killed them. You know, it wasn't because they were resisting or that they were a threat. They just, you know, they just wanted to get rid of them because of who they were. With the Cham, I'm not as convinced. Why? Because they weren't attacking the Cham because they were Cham. They were, uh, the, the Cham that were killed, first, a lot of them rebelled. They you did. Know, they did. And so there was a response to that. Uh, then they didn't want to get with the program. The program was, well, you have to dress like everybody else, wear the black, you got to work like everybody else. Uh, now you Force-fed pork. Force-fed pork, you know, and even that, I have to question some yeah. of that because back then, how many people were eating pork? How much pork was available? If you talk, I've never heard anybody say to me that they were eating meat right. uh, during that period. But okay, let's assume that was happening, okay? They wanted them to assimilate during that process, but they weren't trying to destroy them as such. Now, it's a close call because you could say that culturally you're trying to destroy them, mm -hmm. you know? But that's not part of the genocide definition. Well, that's, I've, I've heard this argument before about uh, uh, cultural genocide, and I'm sorry, I, can't, I, I don't agree with it either. Well, well Lemkin, who... who, who yeah. uh, you know, who came up with the, the, the definition of genocide, yep. initially had cultural de uh, in that, mm -hmm. you know, that was part of the definition. You know, so had that remained in the definition, I would say, yeah, clearly, fine, you know, uh, not a problem. But when, uh, when it was ultimately decided and you had the genocide convention, that was left out. So that's right. not part of the genocide. Uh, you have academics, not necessarily, not lawyers, who are saying, well, who, so what? Change the definition, put it in there, uh, try them anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not how the law works. Okay. You know? Yep. Now, one aspect that I thought should have been or could have been and sh uh, looked into for genocide was with the, uh, the Kampuchea Krom. Right. The Cambodians who were living inside Vietnam at the border, mm -hmm. okay, that were lured into into uh, Cambodia. into Cambodia yep. and purposely killed okay so obviously they wanted to get rid of those people they were basically attacked and killed because of who they were why because they thought they were a threat of course uh, they were you know Cambodian body with a Vietnamese mind but nonetheless they were killing it because of who they were uh, and so I think there was a case that should have been brought Mm -hmm. uh, to the attention. So, you know, I know some of my colleagues or friends uh, may disagree with uh, on the charm, but I take, I take it, you know, I look at it very, very, you know, narrowly, that definition, and I think that if we keep it narrow and mm -hmm. keep it the way and, 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 our, and apply it strictly, then when we say this is genocide, it really has impact. Yep. If we narrow it down, if we, if we uh, uh, water it down and we allow genocide to be called for just about anything then it has no it has no meaning you see uh, yep. and so it loses it, it loses its uh, its importance Michael it's been terrific to chat with you again uh, what next just quickly well you know I uh, 
I, I'm in between cases right now, so uh, I don't have anything exciting, you know, or uh, I don't. I miss the adrenaline rush of the court, but you know, I'm blogging, mm. uh, usually writing about these sorts of issues as I see them. I'm doing some editing. I'm doing some writing of my own, uh, so that kind of keeps me busy, okay. and. Uh, and of course, doing some traveling and coming back to Cambodia is always a good thing, you know, uh, seeing friends and catching up. And Michael, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.